Psalm 63 in your Bibles. I was reading just a couple of days ago, a headline crossed my desk. It said, State of the Bible, left unread during the coronavirus pandemic. The article went on to read, people may be reading the news and doom scrolling through social media during the coronavirus pandemic. But what they don't appear to be reading is the Bible. The number of American adults the American Bible Society considers Scripture engaged based on how frequently they read Scripture and its impact on their relationships and choices dropped significantly from between January and June according to additional data collected by the organization. What we saw, the article said, between January and June was that 13 million people in America who were previously really engaged meaningfully with Scripture no longer were. And that was a serious drop-off. Well, that caught my attention. That 13 million, according to the stats of the American Bible Society, that during the coronavirus pandemic, 13 million Americans who had been meaningfully engaging in Scripture, that doesn't mean they just read a verse once in a while, they are meaningfully engaging in the Word of God on a regular basis, and that it impacts the decisions they make and the relationships they have. 13 million people that were meaningfully engaged are no longer meaningfully engaged during the last six months. Well, I've been doing some thinking and, and, and praying and, and observing uh, the, the spiritual lives, the spiritual uh, atmosphere uh, of America. And so there were a lot of things that had been resonating in my heart with regards to the passion of Christians for their God. And when I ran across that title, that, hit, that article, that, that really caught my attention. And I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you aware of a change in the expression of Christianity by Christians in our country in recent days? Or even spanning over a period of recent history? Have you noticed that some who profess to be Christian may not have the same zeal that seemed prevalent maybe a few years ago, maybe a generation ago? Have you noticed that some seem to opt for an expression of Christianity that requires less from them, that is more convenient and less demanding? You know, we should expect that with the passing of time, spiritual fervor can and sometimes does subside and settle into that tepid temperature of lukewarm. We can trace that generationally through history. Times of revival and then times of, uh, of uh, tapering off of zeal for God. Generational changes where first generation Christians, first generation uh, saved people who left a world of sin, a lifestyle of sin, when they embraced Jesus Christ and their lives dramatically changed. And, and then following the, 
the temperature of their passion into their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. And sometimes there is a lessening of passion as zeal sometimes turns lukewarm. Jesus Christ spoke of that in Matthew 24. Jesus said, speaking of the future, Jesus said, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Jesus recognized that when sin grows in an environment, in a culture, in a family, in a church, in a, in a community, that one of the results that sometimes and often comes when iniquity abounds, those who are passionately in love with Jesus Christ lose their passion and their love waxes cold. Now, contextually, Jesus Christ was speaking of the period during the first half of the tribulation period and what is going to happen during that time as sin runs rampant across the world. But yet the same principle can be traced historically. And we can see that whenever sin becomes rampant, that there is the possibility, maybe even the probability, that the zeal of many Christians will grow lukewarm. And so I have to ask myself the question. Has that happened? Has the American Bible Society article indicated that it has happened in America during COVID-19? Could it be that, that the change in life in America as a result of COVID-19 has contributed to a lukewarm effect permeating some who were zealous and passionate in their Christianity? Or maybe, maybe we're living in a time when gradually there's been a lessening of zeal and COVID-19 has, has simply been, the, uh, been magnified. Uh, the, the, the gradual decline has been magnified as a result of what has happened with COVID-19. Well, these thoughts have been, I've been wrestling for weeks with, with the state of the Christian heart in today's America, then I have to ask myself the question, what is the state of my soul? And I would encourage you for a few moments to ask yourself the question, what is the state of your soul right now in your passion and zeal for Jesus Christ? Has COVID-19 resulted or perhaps magnified an expansion of your thirst for God? Or has COVID-19 contributed to or magnified a diminishing of your thirst for God? Has the turmoil in our world provided a canvas upon which you can... Paint the picture of the reality of your soul less or more passionate for God. Aside from, aside from COVID altogether, I have, I have observed over the course of the last half of my ministerial life of nearly 45 years that 
that things aren't what they were when I was in the first half of my ministerial years. Uh, one, place, one place I see that is that in young, young people growing up in Christianity. I can remember the day when, when I was uh, of college age, the college students uh, would come home for the summer and they couldn't wait to get back to church. And they were every, every time the doors were open, they were there and they were volunteering. What can I do for the summer? Uh, what, 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 what ministry opportunities? I'm only here for eight weeks. What can I do while I'm home for the summer? Especially Bible college students. Bible college students would come home from Bible college all excited and you couldn't pry them away from church because they were looking for the opportunity to make a difference with their lives in the time they were back. And I've seen that digress over the years. Sometimes some college students come back and you never see them at church or you very seldom see them at church. And few come and say, what ministries could I get involved in this summer? What can I do to make a difference with my life in the few weeks that I'm here? I'm asking the question, has the passion of the heart for Jesus Christ changed in recent history? Oh, how I love Jesus. Really? Jesus is Lord to me. Is he? I think those are questions that it does me good and does all of us good to give serious consideration to when it when it comes to the state of our soul. But by the way, I don't think the problem is the problem. You say, well, we just need to get we just need to get people back to, to the church building for for church services. We just need to get people uh, to, uh, to volunteer for ministry. No, no, the problem's not the problem. The problem pulls the lid off to let me peer into the heart to find out the problem is whether or not I thirst for God. Because if I thirst for God, that has dramatic impacts. On what I do with my life. If I'm playing the game of Christianity. In my heart. That will reveal itself. In the observation. Of my life. And so the question is. What is the state of my heart? I would say the bluff. Even though this isn't at the front. I would say the bottom line up front is this. Which is true in your life? Which of these could you say. From your heart. With just you and God in the room, I thirst for God. Or would you have to be honest and say to God, I thirst for things aside from God, which might be true. I hope you'll listen carefully. I, wanna, I want to engage with you this morning. I, I want to explore some deep-seated burdens of your pastor's heart I want to engage with you as we wrestle with the core reality of what does it mean to know God? And has the striking history of the last six months magnified, revealed, or contributed to a lesser intensity of wanting 
to know God. So I chose as the source of our meditation from God's word a portion of scripture that is the heart cry of a man who in his youthful vigor experienced a spiritual zeal for God. A man whose success made his name the envy of everyone in Israel. A man whose shame of lust and moral failure broke his life and his passion for God. A man whose bitter ache of guilt, remorse, and tear-filled repentance showed that he once again wanted God. But unfortunately, the long reality of reaping what he had sown followed him to the day of his death. That man is David. And that man, David, pinned this portion of Scripture as a heart cry from God. And in this portion of Scripture, I see David. He knows what he needs. He's experienced it all, but he knows what he needs. He longs for what he knows has real meaning. Fully aware of a world around him that has little meaning eternally. A man who longed for what he knew was real. Substantive satisfaction and long-lasting peace. That only comes through a vibrant, passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. And he wants it so badly. He's desperate to know God. Well, how does the experience of this human author reflect on the experiences of my life? Well, there are two revelations that I uh, have been been observing and studying and thinking about from this psalm. And I want to show you these two revelations. The first revelation is the revelation that I would call my recognition of what is. My recognition of what is. And I see this in the opening statement. Oh God, thou art my God. Here is the, the core of every Christian. The Two core foundational beliefs of every serious Christian. One's about God and one's about me. And David blurts out from the depths of his soul. He says, oh, God. And I see a revelation of God's existence. David is not questioning the existence of God. He has not learned, he has not listened to atheists and doubters and skeptics that have caused him to question whether God even exists or not. He knows God is real. He knows God is a person. He knows God is, is existing and God is active and God is communicative. He knows the existence of God. You know, in our prayer sheets this week, we've asked you... Uh, this past week to meditate as a church family on the name of God, Elohim. And that's the name that is found here, translated into the English as God. Oh, Elohim. And it's the name that speaks of God in his strength, his might, his power. It's the first name that is revealed to us in Scripture. We read it in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God. 
Elohim, the God of power, creative power. He speaks and things appear out of nothing. Elohim, oh God, came out of David's heart as he began this meditation. He knows that God exists and he knows God is strong. He knows God is powerful. He knows God can create everything out of nothing. He knows that God exists and is real and has unlimited strength and unlimited power. That's foundational to every Christian, isn't it? I know God exists. The prophet in Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a a, a child is born unto us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor Elohim, the Mighty God. And that's what David is focused on. David is focused on the existence of a God of unlimited strength and power, and he knows he's real. That's foundational to the life of every Christian. Oh, God, began David's appeal. He knows God exists. And uh, to follow up on what Pastor Ryan mentioned about, oh, I still remember Colin Peckham. He's in heaven now. Colin and Mary Peckham from the British Isles. Mary Peckham was involved in the uh, revival of uh, the New Hebrides Islands back in her youthfulness as a, a youngster. And she told stories of the revival that spread through the British Isles. There in that time in history. And Colin Peckham speaking to us uh, here at CBC years ago back in the warehouse on a, either a Sunday night or a Wednesday night. I don't recall. He was speaking from one of the Psalms. Might have been this very Psalm. I don't know. Because the Psalm began with the phrase, Oh God. And I can still hear Colin saying and see Colin Peckham saying, We need to get the O oh back in our prayer life. Oh, God is foundational to the Christian life. God exists. A recognition of what is. But not only God's existence, but my salvation. He said, thou art my God. David knew that God was not some faraway being that just existed in the figment of people's imaginations, nor was he a real person that was uninvolved in his life. He knew God was his God. Amen. He knew the personal relationship of having a God that is mine, and I am his, in the words of the Song of Solomon. Oh, he knew that there was a time in his life where the creator God of the universe became his God. Because of Calvary. Because Jesus Christ had taken his place and died on the cross. And our God is not merely a brute strength in a far off place. He's my Father who lives in heaven. I am his son. You're his daughter or son. He is our Father. Through salvation we have a, a God that's real to us. Personally. Jesus Christ, on Calvary, the sacrifice as the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, sacrificing His precious life's blood, His very life itself, in our place as our substitute, so that a holy God could let us off the hook without losing His justness. 
And he could only do that by personally paying the fine that we owed for us. Through his own life's blood, he became man and died for us. And it's only because of that that we can say, oh, my God. Foundational truths. David recognized what is. What is? God exists and I'm saved. That's the foundation of every Christian's life. God exists and I'm saved. And my recognition of what is prompts me to express the depth of what he has accomplished in my soul. Listen, let me say that again. Listen carefully. My recognition of what is prompts me to express the depth of what he has accomplished in my soul. And what is that? That's the second revelation. Not only the Recognition of what is, but then followed up with the expression of what is. As David expresses from the depth of his soul what is real in his relationship with God. And what is that? My passion for God. Verse 1 says, Thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. And then down in verse number 6, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. You, You see, David had a passion for the God who had changed his life. And that passion was a daily passion. He said, when I get up early in the morning, early will I seek thee. Come and see what's on my mind at the end of the day in the night watches. And in the, at the end of the day in the night watches, you'll find me remembering what God has done in my life as I lay on my bed drifting off to sleep. And in the middle of the night, I meditate on thee in the night watches. Oh, this reveals a passion that David had for God. A passion that is expressed by the reality that I'm thirsty for God. I can't get enough of God. I want more of God. My soul longeth for God. I long for God in the morning and I start my day thinking about my God. I long for God in the night when I lay on my bed and think about God. What he means to me. David revealed that he had known enough of the world to know that it's a dry and thirsty land where no water is. He he speaks of his surroundings, his environment. He's in the Judean wilderness. He speaks of his environment as being a place that does not bring satisfaction. A place that does not produce joy. A place that does not give peace. A place that does not have anything to offer to him that is meaningful to his heart's cry. I am in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. And in this environment that surrounds my life, and I see all that the world has to offer me, I thirst for God. 
And I long for Him. And I meditate and think upon Him in the early morning hours and late at night. A passion for God. I have to ask the question, where did this passion come from? What generated this passion in David's experience? I would have to say that this passion came from his experience. You see, verse number two, he says, after expressing that from the early in the morning, early in the morning, he, he thirsts for God, he longs for God to see thy power and thy glory so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. He said, God, I've got some experience. You and I have been together. I've seen some things you've done. I've experienced some things you've, you've accomplished in my life. I, I have seen some things. And that's where my passion comes from. My passion comes from my experience. Would you remember that? Passion always comes from experience. No experience, no passion. Experience, passion. David said, I have seen thee. Where did he see God? He saw God in the sanctuary. That would be the tabernacle. The temple hadn't been built yet. It wasn't built till David died and his son built it. It was still that old tabernacle. First put together on Mount Sinai, at the foot of Mount Sinai, so many generations before. Carted for 40 years across the wilderness. Finally set up in Shiloh. Moved eventually to Jerusalem. It was the, the sanctuary where God's Shekinah glory dwelt for the people of Israel. It was the place that gathered the people to a location, a physical location, a building that drew the people together in there. There was the there was the the brazen altar and the brazen laver and the and the candle stand and, and, and the table of showbread and the altar of incense and then the very Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and the cherubim looking over the mercy seat where the blood was applied on the Day of Atonement, prefiguring and pointing to the day when the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, would come and pour out His shed, pour out His life's blood in order to cover the sin of man that was inside the Ark of the Covenant, the Law, the Ten Commandments. And would hide from view so the cherubim could not see into the law of God. Because it was covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. And it was there at the sanctuary that David would go. David mentioned in another place in, um, in Psalm 27. He said, one thing have I desired of the Lord and that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why did he want to dwell at the tabernacle Every day. What was it about the tabernacle that drew David wanting every day to go to the tabernacle? He said that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord 
and to inquire in his temple. I want to see with my eyes that altar stained in blood. I want to walk in and look at the pieces of of furniture. And I want to see the beauty of a God that did all of this to redeem my soul from hell. And then I want to inquire. I want to ask questions. I want to learn more. I'm hungry for more. I'm not satisfied with what I've got. I want to know more. I want to learn more. I want to explore more. I want to inquire. David loved the sanctuary. It was where he experienced. What did he experience? Psalm 63 verse number 2 says he saw God's Power and glory. You know, when you, when you spend time exploring the person of God, you will experience His power and His glory in your life. The power of a God who can forgive me of my sin. The power of the God who can change me and Conform me into his own very image that I might be holy even as he is holy. The God who's glorified when my life reflects his life. The God whose glory is magnified when my life becomes conformed to his existence. I learned so much at the sanctuary. And I begin to see what God's done in my life. And my mind goes back to being a 14-year-old teenager on my knees at the front of Bethlehem Baptist Church, crying out to God, Oh, God, would you save me from my sin? And the guilt that rolled off my back when I knew Jesus Christ had come into my life and had forgiven me of all my sin, the, the beauty of God, the love of God, the glory of God, the power of God. I've experienced it. And the passion of my heart for Jesus Christ grows out of my experience of being in the presence of my God. And if you don't have any experience with God, you won't have any passion for God. But if you have experience with God, you can't hardly help but have passion for God. David understood that and his lips burst forth. He said in verse number three, because thy loving kindness is better than life. He said, the love I've experienced as a result of my interactions with God, thy loving kindness is better than anything this world has to offer me. There's nothing this world can give me. That can even compare a little bit to the love of my creator that floods my sinful soul and makes me whiter than snow. He loves me in spite of what I've done to him. He loves me. That's my experience. And because thy loving kindness is better than life, I can't help it. My lips praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. Oh, David's experience was deep. And it was that depth of experience 
that caused the passion of his heart to flow. Now he remembered what he had experienced in the past. But that led him to a place of commitment. My passion comes out of my experience. And my experience results in my commitment. If you carefully read this psalm, and you'll notice some words at the end of verse number 3. My lips shall. That's a commitment. I'm going to do this thing. You'll see it in verse number 4. Thus will I bless. That's a commitment. I will bless God's holy name. I will lift up my hands in thy name. Verse 5. My soul shall be satisfied. My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. Verse 7 ends. Therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. And it comes in its strongest statement in verse number 8. Verse number 8. My soul Followeth hard after thee. I'm all in, God. I am committed. You can count on me. There's some things I will do. And when you see my life, Lord, you'll see me following. Not lackadaisical. 25 yards back, lollygagging around, kind of following in the general direction you're going, God. You'll see me following hard after you. That's a depth of commitment. So what do I learn from this, this cry from David's heart? I learned that, I learned that commitment is the overflow of passion and passion erupts from experience. And if I have experience with a God who has changed my life, and I'm overwhelmed by the experience, I will be passionate about my God. And when I'm passionate about my God, I will be committed to Him. Why is there maybe a lessening of commitment among some Christians today? Why is a convenient Christianity appealing to some Christians today? Why is sacrifice for God disdained as unrealistic? Could it be our lack of passion reveals that we've never experienced God? Could it be that fewer and fewer Christians have ever known God? And their claim to be a Christian sounds hollow, cheap, plastic. Besides something that's real and genuine and the real deal. Could it be that the duty of doing is discarded by a generation who have no passion? And that's why there is no doing. Once ago, we thought that just for a brief few weeks, we would be separated from one another and living in solitude under stay-at-home orders. And that it would only last for brief weeks. Churches would not be able to function in personal gatherings, and it would only be a short period of time. And then the interruption of an impersonal lifestyle in public church ministry grew into month after month after month. And in this unusual time, it's been interesting to see 
polar opposites of impact. I was reading this week Pam Wheeler's posts on social media. She's at the last stages of quarantine over in Africa because of traveling from America to Uganda to pack up all of her stuff and to move to Botswana for her next uh, episode in missions, the next season of her life. And she's been in quarantine, locked in a room all by herself in quarantine day after day after day after day. And she was writing about her experiences with God. Could it be that there are times when coronavirus has magnified one's growth? It was good to hear families talk about more family devotions, more quality time parents imparting their faith to their children. Those are good things. And then you hear of others that have binge-watched television hour after hour after hour after hour because they have no hunger for God. They have no thirst for God. And... The changes in lifestyle have resulted in changes of what they do with their time, and it's not focused on a passion for God. We're thankful for the technological tools that enabled us to stay in contact and for those who spent literally hundreds of hours producing and enabling the ministry of Community Baptist Church to reach out through our media screens and keep us connected by media. We thank God for that. And we thank God for every family that has found a growing uh, experience of passion for God in the time they had more time off work and more time together. Those are all good things. Could it be there's been negative impacts? Has the church meeting together to worship to sing to God and to study His Word, lost anything in the process? Has Internet Church become a substitute for gathering together? And I don't speak of those who need to be separated and stay at home because of extenuating circumstances. I'm thinking of those who go shopping who go into public gatherings of other kinds, but then they use COVID as an excuse for why they can't come to church. I'm all for people not coming to church when they need to be separated and segregated. I find it a bit hypocritical when someone can go shopping, but then use COVID for an excuse of not coming to church. I think at that point, COVID has magnified something in the soul. Something in the heart that every person who feels those, those considerations needs to think seriously and talk to God about. I, I, know, I know that the concentration level of watching church at home is different than the concentration level of sitting in an, in an auditorium participating in church. I know that in the middle of a worship song singing praise to God that when my phone goes off, which takes priority? Do I answer the text 
in the middle of the song of worship to my Creator. I know that in the middle of a sermon when the doorbell rings, if I'm at church, the door never gets answered. But if I'm at home, oh well, put it on pause. If that, well, I go answer the door. Could it be that the circumstances that we're experiencing might reveal the heart is not as passionate? But here's a deeper question. I, I was listening to some church leaders on a blog um, talking about the impact of COVID on the churches they pastor. And one of them made a statement that, that just kind of uh, stuck in my brain and I wrote it down afterwards. He said, what I'm finding is that there is a change in the way people are viewing church. Church is becoming a commodity rather than a mission. Church is a commodity, something I get. I can, I can get it at 11 o'clock tonight. I can get it at 10 o'clock this morning. I can just, I can just pop in and get something. It, church is a commodity that I get instead of a mission. Instead of a place where I go to organize myself with other Christians to fulfill the mission that Jesus Christ gave to His churches. And how the body can come together and fulfill the mission of reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and bringing people into the kingdom. Could it be that church is just something I get and I can get it just as easy on the Internet as I can get it in person? And the church is no longer a missional organization that God created to be able to impact His world. Has church become a convenience rather than a sacrifice? It's convenient. I'll agree. It's convenient to go to church in your pajamas. Don't have to do your hair, don't have to get dressed, don't have to do anything, just kind of grab a cup of coffee, catch church. Have we made church convenient? And then when church is available again, are we reluctant to give up the convenience and have to make a sacrifice? It's convenient to fit God around my lifestyle. It's convenient to fit God around my agenda. It's convenient to fit God around my preferences. There's no need for me to sacrifice me for Him. There's no need to sacrifice my agenda for His agenda or my schedule for His schedule. I'll fit Him in when it's convenient. That's a serious question I have to ask myself. Because you know something? It's pretty convenient to catch church. When you have the time. And it's a sacrifice. To be able to fit my life around God's life. But Jesus Christ said. If any man will come after me. Let him deny himself. And take up his cross. And follow me. That's sacrifice. That's self-denial. That's fitting me around God, not fitting God around me. And could it be that during this unusual season that we're living through, that 
there are some unhealthy things that might be happening in our hearts when church becomes a commodity rather than a mission and it becomes a convenience rather than a sacrifice. Oh, how I love Jesus. Jesus is all the world to me. May that resonate in my heart. And may not the strange things that have happened in America not rob God of the passion of His people. But may we as the people of God and those who are at home watching this by way of of live stream, may our passion for God trump the convenience of our lives. And may we hunger for God because He is all the world to me.